you, Brother Dan. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 27. Our text for the last couple of weeks has been verses 35 and 36. Matthew 27, verse 35 and 36. Anybody want to read that? Thank you, Brother Dan. Our focus is on the first part of verse 35. They crucified him. And then the first part of verse 36, or the first 36, sitting down, they watched him there. According to John chapter 19, verse 23, and Matthew 27, 54, uh, the references to the Roman soldiers, and uh, they were the ones with the duty of carrying out crucifixions. They were off- authorized by the Roman government to do that uh, when the death was passed out, and uh, we can only imagine the horror of something like that. Uh, now, I've never seen, neither of you probably, anything like that, uh, but from what I read, it was quite a spectacle. I mean, a lot of people would come to watch a crucifixion as bad as it was. But our point the last couple of weeks is the fact that these soldiers sat down there and they watched him as he was crucified. Now, again, they were doing their duty, uh, but because of who he claimed to be, uh, the king of the Jews, uh, they certainly probably went beyond what they normally would have. They mocked him, uh, exposed him to a lot of indignities there. Uh, they put that robe of scarlet on him. They crowned him with those thorns uh, and hailed him as king of the Jews. Now, certainly he was, uh, but they weren't being honest in their declaration of it. They were simply making fun of him. There were three things we looked at a week or so ago. First of all, uh, the circumstances of Matthew 26 and Mark 15. We know the whole thing was stirred up uh, by religious leaders, and before it was carried out, uh, even the common people we're in agreement with crucifying, at least most of them were. The scene, according to Hebrews 13, verse 12, uh, it was outside of Jerusalem. Now, by the way, uh, that's because on the Day of Atonement, uh, the body of the sacrifice had to be burned outside the camp rather than eaten by the priest inside. But nonetheless, uh, the actual place was Golgotha, a place that was considered, uh, considered uh, looked at as the place of the skull. Then the third thing we looked at, I want to go back to that one, kind of camped it just for a moment tonight because... I didn't cover it in a lot of detail. And that is the time of the resurrection. And we're not talking time during the day, but the time of year, basically. Go to John chapter 19, uh, verse 31. John 19, verse 31. Look what the Bible says. The Jews, therefore, because it was a preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day. He sought Pilate that their their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Isn't it funny how religious people can get religious on certain things? They didn't care about the fact they had falsely accused him, but they simply didn't want to break this tradition of this time of year. Now, the Bible says uh, it was a day of preparation. Whenever you read about the day of preparation, it's always the day before the Sabbath. Because on that day, you prepare whatever it was you're going to 
have during uh, that Sabbath day. Now, notice this, what it said, what John says, and he's the only gospel writer that notices. He said, but that Sabbath was a high day. Now, this day of preparation, uh, this was that particular year, it was Passover proper. The day on which Christ died. But not only that, not only was the next day a Sabbath day, it was also a preparation day for the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And that seven-day feast began immediately after the day of Passover. And that's why, uh, if you think about it, it's often called Passover week. And again, both both uh, celebrations kind of ran uh, consecutively, if you will, sometimes almost as a joined together, but they were certainly two separate things. So that being said, uh, it's interesting. There's been a debate through the years. Uh, was Christ crucified on Friday? Uh, was it Wednesday? Uh, there are some who hold to Thursday. Uh, we know we, we'll never know that till Jesus comes. But here's what we do know. It would have been on Passover day. And the reason that preparation for the next day was a high Sabbath, not just an ordinary Sabbath, it would be the beginning, if you will, <clears throat> of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Jesus was crucified on the 14th day of Nisan, again about the beginning of our April, and uh, that is certainly what the Bible says. Now here's what's interesting. Uh, most of you know that during this time of year, uh, Jerusalem was flooded with worshipers. Uh, it was one of the uh, pre-festivals that Jews from all over the world were required to return to participate in that. And the sad thing is, uh, well, I should say sad. The whole thing is sad because of what uh, the Jews had planned to do. Uh, they really didn't want to take Jesus during that time because of the crowds. They were afraid of a revolt. And, of course, they were also afraid that if there was a riot of any size, uh, they would, you know, make the Romans mad and it wouldn't go well uh, for the Jews. Forget about their crucifying an innocent man. They were more concerned about themselves. So, again, I just want to point out, Christ was indeed crucified on Passover proper. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that was coincidence? Yes or no? No. Keep in mind, who's in, who's in control here? The Jews, the Romans, or God? God is. And it was the day that Passover lamb was to be slain. And so Jesus Christ was slain on that day. And by the way, all four Gospels agree with that, show that Jesus Christ died on the preparation day before the Sabbath. So again, John says it was a high Sabbath. It wasn't just in the ordinary Sabbath. That Sabbath would have been the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we see what was going on. Uh, the circumstance, the Jews wanted him crucified. The crowd joined with him. Uh, we saw the place outside of Jerusalem. They wouldn't do it inside. It's simply biblical. Hebrews backs that up. And then the time was during, actually on Passover proper, the day that Jesus died for our sins. So the Bible says they sat there and they watched him. So what did they see? We're going to highlight them real quick. First of all, uh, the Bible says they, we, we look at that, they saw, what they saw was the most amazing event in all of history. Would you agree with that? The most amazing. Second of all, they saw the perfections of the crucified one. 
Now think about this, folks. Uh, probably most of the time, uh, if not all the time, pretty well, those criminals would claim their innocence. They would curse uh, those who were crucifying them. But Jesus didn't do that. He behaved in a totally different manner. In fact, uh, not only did he not curse them, the Bible says he prayed for them. And what did he ask God to do? To forgive them. Yeah, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And i got to tell you, I'm not sure I could have done that. But he did. He prayed for them. So they saw how perfect the crucified one was. The third thing was, they saw a very mysterious phenomenon take place. Now remember, about noon it became dark as midnight. Uh, so that was certainly uh, an unbelievable thing, if you will. But that's exactly what happened. But also, the Bible says the veil of the temple was torn. And that would have been a magnificent thing to happen. Uh, again, please understand, uh, that veil was torn from top to bottom. And it was about a handbreadth thick. So it couldn't have been done by a human hand. So uh, a phenomenon, they saw that happen. Fourth thing that happened that day, uh, what they saw brought about their conviction and their conversion. Because those, that centurion and those with him said, surely this must be the Son of God. So that's basically what they saw. Now, by the way, I'm not sure they saw the tearing of the, of the temple curtain. That would be on the inside. But they did see it turn uh, midnight at noon. Uh, so they did see that part of it. But again, both things were phenomenal from the hand of God. So what you and I as Christians, what do we see? Number one, we see the character of man being unveiled. Now, keep in mind, uh, <laughs> the Bible tells us that our heart is very wicked. And it was on Calvary that it was really demonstrated to the full extent. God sent a Savior, and what did man do to him? They killed him. They crucified him. So we, we, we see the character of man. We're simple creatures. The second thing we see is the unveiling of sin. And God has spoken through Jeremiah. And, and God said, whatever you do to the Jews, don't do the abominable thing that I hate. And the thing that God hates is sin. He absolutely hates sin. And so there on the cross, there at Calvary, we see the climax of sin. And we see the the horrible length that sin will go. And, And we saw it there at Calvary. The third thing that we saw was the character of God. And I got to tell you tonight, folks, I am very thankful uh, for the character of God. In fact, the Bible tells us in Isaiah that the heavens declare the glory. Uh, we know that. I mean, and the psalmist said that. Uh, the heavens declare his glory. Uh, the firmament shows his handiwork. But the best place to see uh, the character of God was displayed on the cross. Now, remember, Jesus, God himself, loved the world so much, he sent his only son. And again, what did we do to him? We killed him. Did God not know that? When it happened, sure he did. But we see the character of God. He was willing. He loved us so much. He was willing to allow his son to die in our place. But the fourth thing that, that is true we see on Calvary is the fact that God's justice is not flexible. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, the soul that sins, it 
shall die. In Ezekiel 34, verse 7, God says, I'm sorry, I'm not in Exodus 34, the Bible says God will by no means clear the guilty. Now remember, we know that Jesus Christ was tempted in every manner as we are, except without what? Without sin. He never sinned. But please understand, on Calvary, he was made sin for us. He became sin for us. The one who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now remember, (laughs) the soul that sins shall die. So Jesus now, he didn't sin, but he didn't made sin. And the question we would ask, would God make an exception? And the answer is no. Because God's justice is not flexible. Sin has a penalty. And what is it? Death. The wages of sin is death. And if Jesus Christ was going to take care of our sin, what did he have to do? He had to die. He had to die. Now remember, he was sinless by his actions. He was sinless by his nature. But also understand, because the sins of all of us were laid upon him, God simply did not and could not spare his only son. Why? Because his justice is not flexible. It always remains the same. Now, please understand, sin calls for a righteous demand. And God was not going to allow anything to dishonor his justice, to dishonor the fair face of the way he governed. God changes not. His justice changes not. God claims to be the perfect judge. He's a God who has no respect of persons. And that was demonstrated on Calvary because he refused to let his only begotten son, in whom his soul delighted, he refused to pardon him when Jesus Christ took our place. He died for our sins. But the fifth thing, we didn't get that far last week, we see God's amazing grace. Do we ever think about that? Over and over and over again. Let's go to Romans 5, look at verse 8. Anybody got that? Wow. That word commended means that God demonstrated his love in a most unusual way. He died for us while we were yet sinners. A lot of mistakes, I mean, one mistake I hear people who are unsaved tell me through the years, well, before I get saved, I've got to clean my life up. That's not true. Number one, you can't. But Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. I'm really glad that's true tonight. Aren't you glad that's true? He died for us while we were yet sinners. Now, remember, what we know is important, and that's exactly what Christ did. 
Now, when God made Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, early on, how would you describe Adam and Eve? What word was used? Say it again, Dan. Perfect, without flaw. But we know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned. Now, is it not true that God could have said, you had your chance, you blew it, so now I am going to consign Adam's race to everlasting woe. No second chance. Now, by the way, is that what we deserve? Sure it is. And the question we would ask is, why wouldn't God do that? Because of amazing grace. Now remember, <clears throat> well, let me ask a question. We don't have the verse in our notes tonight, but there was a, a rich uh, young ruler came to see Jesus, and he says, to G- or he asked Jesus Christ, he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember the question Jesus asked him first? Why are you calling me good? And then he explained, because there's none good but one. Now, let me remind you, um, he wasn't denying that he was good. But this rich young ruler just saw a teacher, a rabbi there. But he was more than a rabbi, he was God. And so therefore he was good. But no matter who else you apply the word good to, does it fit? No, why? There is none good, no, not one. So by nature... We are depraved. By nature, we are corrupt. And not only by nature, but also in practice. You heard the story I've heard one years ago. I think it was Dr. Tony Evans told it. About a fellow who was hired or was a servant of this wealthy man. And all day long, he was cutting trees. And every time he swung that axe and hit that tree, he cried, Oh, Adam. Well, as it went on, he was invited into the owner's house. He said, You're going to live here. Everything is yours. But there's a little, little box on the table. If you move that box, you're going back to the forest. Went by for a week or so, I guess, and his curiosity got him. And well, he picked that box up and out ran a little white mouse. Well, it didn't take long. The owner found out. I said, what have you done? What have you done? Back to the woods. And this time, when he took that axe, when he struck that tree, he didn't say, oh, Adam. He called his own name out. He blamed himself. So what's the point? Yes, we are depraved by nature. But we're also depraved by our practice. Do you understand that? Because we have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And the, and the bottom line is, it's not that we loved him first. He first loved us. We are persistent rebels. And for the most part, well, before Christ came into our hearts, we had no concern for his glory. We deserve death. We deserved eternal woe. We deserve destruction. But look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. 
Anybody got that? Want to read it? To the praise of the glory of His grace. Notice this. Wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Now remember, our point tonight, what we also see on Calvary is God's grace. We who were depraved by nature, but also not just by nature, we are corrupt by practice in our lives. But Paul reminds us, he gives praise to the glory of God's grace. Because Paul said it's in that grace that God has made us accepted, and we're accepted through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so out of his own goodness, out of his own mercy, God determined to save us from their sins. And he determined to redeem us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So let me ask you tonight. If it wasn't for grace, where where would we be? We'd be lost. Lost for eternity. And from the foundation of the world, God had a plan. He wasn't caught off guard. He knew man was going to sin. But he determined from the foundation of the world to pluck us as brands from a burning fire so we might become eternal monuments of his mercy by his Grace. Jesus died and he made atonement for our sins. I think I need to ask a question. (laughs) What power do we have to make atonement for our sins? None. Years ago, I, I taught a, I think it was a 12-week course called Precepts for Practice. And it's simply about some of the basic doctrines uh, of the Scriptures. And in one lesson, we were talking about the atonement. Big word. And I'll never forget how they said to explain that. It explained it to me as well, because I was learning as I was teaching. It said, break that word atonement down to the three words. At, one, meant. At one meant. We were separated from God. Christ came and did what? He made us one again. He brought us back together. <laughs> so Jesus Christ. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't atone for our sins. We couldn't atone for the crimes we have done. So Christ himself came and he provided the all-sufficient sacrifice for us. We sing that hymn once, well, Jesus paid it all. What's that mean? Amen. He paid every bit of it. Every last part of that debt, Jesus paid it. First Peter 5.10, anybody got that? Thank you, Dan. Now, we know Peter's writing uh, to Jews of the diaspora. They're being persecuted for their faith in Christ. 
Some have lost their families. Some have lost their wealth. Whatever they had. And Peter's trying to encourage them. And our focus is on that first statement there in verse 10. Uh, Peter says, the God of all grace. Now my question is, the Bible says that. But I need to ask you this question. Does God demonstrate it? Yes, he does. Over and over and over and over again. And we think about God's grace and how rich the grace of God is. But there is nowhere else that God's grace is so lavishly and wonderfully on display than it was at Calvary. Now remember, who did Jesus die for? Everyone. What about those that plucked his beard that day? He died for them. What about those who spit in his face? He died for them. He died for me. He died for you. So at Calvary, we see the wonderful, marvelous grace of God. But the sixth thing that we see there is God's manifold wisdom. Revelation 21, verse 6. Anybody got that one to read it? Thank you, Brother Bill. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, first of all, God is speaking here. Christ is speaking. And he talks about thirsty people. Thirsty people who really want that drink. And he says, I'll provide the water of life. Please understand, the water of life is eternal life. It is eternity in heaven with God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. So the question we have to ask ourselves, being the sinners that we are, being the fact that we fall short of God's glory all the time, and we continue to do so, how is it possible? Because God is so inflexible in His justice, how is it possible for us to enter heaven? How could it be that people like you and I, so devoid of righteousness, how could we ever meet the divine approval of God? Now remember, God hates sin. And I need to ask a question, when will God ever love sin? Ever. Now we read a moment ago, The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. Don't tell anybody I said this, okay? I have sinned. Yeah. I have sinned. I have broken the law 
And because of God's inflexible justice, how in the world can I escape its penalty? And I want to tell you, not only myself, but all of us, we are spiritual paupers. How can we obtain the necessary ransom to be paid? Now, i got to tell you, folks, there's a problem here. And this is a problem that no human intelligence can solve. And by the way, now understand something about this, okay? Listen very carefully. And we cannot solve it just by appealing to the mercy of God, the bare mercy of God. And let me explain that. I preached a couple of years ago about on the topic of the attributes of God, and there are a lot of them. So I, I, I want to ask a question tonight, and, you know, really not a difficult question because it really demands only one answer. Uh, which one of God's attributes would override the other one? None. Which one would negate it? other one. None. So, appealing to mercy alone is not enough to override his justice or his integrity. Now, think about that. God never changes. Has God ever had to apologize for saying something wrong? No. Will he ever have to? No. Because he's perfect. So mercy by itself, even though it is an attribute of God, cannot override his justice or his integrity. Psalm 8510, I would encourage everybody to turn there. Now this is this just broke my heart when I came across it a couple of weeks ago. Read it again, Dan. Mercy and truth. They have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And here's what's interesting. On Calvary, at the cross, the divine perfections shone out in glorious unity. They came together. And that's why we're talking about the wisdom of God. What man could not figure out, God said, I have a way to forgive their sins and, and maintain my justice and maintain my integrity. So nowhere better does it show than at Calvary, at the cross, when mercy and truth met together, righteousness and peace kissed each other. So God's justice 
was satisfied by Christ. Now keep that in mind. And because of that, because that justice was satisfied, because his integrity was maintained, his mercy flows freely to everyone who repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, God determined from the foundation of the world to save us from our sins. But could God flex, could he bend the rules? No. Mercy and truth met together. Now I realize when we think about the wisdom of God, we see it in creation. We see the wisdom of God in his providence, but you don't see it any better than you do at Calvary. God came up with a way that our sins might be pardoned. And number seven, we saw what they saw. We saw what we see, but now we see ourselves. We used to work for a local barber, do a lot of work for him. And uh, he told me one time, he said, I never did cut hair very good, but I could sure talk good. And he said, I learned that if you're going to tell a story, you always add a little bit to it. But he told my brother and I one time, he said, boy, he said, every morning I look in the mirror and I, I just look at my, and I, and of course he says his name, he said, you're the greatest. Now I know he was kidding, of course, maybe, maybe he wasn't. But how many know sometimes when you look in the mirror, we don't like what we see? We don't like who we are or how we've acted, our attitude, whatever it might be. But when you look at the cross, as my eyes are fixed on the cross, I see myself. And so will everyone else who looks to Calvary with the eye of faith. Guess who Jesus hung there for? He did it for me and for you. He hung there as a surety of his people. And this thought just blew my mind when I read it from that study guy. You hear me well. You see, I see myself. And then I realize this. There cannot be representation without identification. Let that sink in. There cannot be representation without identification. I don't know how to explain this. I guess completely, but some of you here are, are pet lovers. That's okay. Uh, you can be weird if you want to. I'm kidding, okay? My, my mom and dad were pet lovers. And uh, I'm glad that dog died before I did uh, because that dog would have got everything probably. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, and, and, and I know there's some different kind of people in the world nowadays. I don't know that anybody would be willing to become a dog or a cat to identify with him. How many know Jesus became one of us? You know why? 
But there's no way he could represent us unless he first identified with us. There is no representation without identification. And so Jesus Christ, now hear me well, he identified with those whose sins he bore. And believers now, we identify with him. And now, in the sight of God, we are one. Thank you, Jesus. I was reading today in John chapter 17. It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful prayer. And, of course, initially praying for the disciples. But Christ also said, I'm praying for all those who will believe through their word. And that's you and I. And his prayer was that, like he and the Father are one, that we will be one with him. And we are through Jesus Christ alone. And do you realize this tonight that uh, Jesus Christ took your place? He took my place. And faith appropriates that fact. He died for our sins. And so we looking, we see ourselves in the person of my substitute, Jesus Christ. I satisfied through Christ every requirement of God's law because Jesus, in fact, did pay it all. In the person of Christ, and hear me well, I paid the full price of what justice demanded. Now remember, since Jesus paid it all, what is left to pay? Nothing. It's all been paid. Isaiah 61, look at verse 10. Anybody got that? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me, notice this, with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decked himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Folks, you understand our soul is joyful. Why? Because God has clothed us with clothes of salvation, of righteousness. Thank God for that. In the person of Jesus Christ, I stand approved before God. You know why? Because I am clothed with His praiseworthy perfections. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Anybody got that one? Amen. 1 Peter 2, 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the cross, that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Galatians 2 verse 20. 
Romans 2, I'm sorry, Galatians 2.20. Are you there, Dan? I'm sorry, brother. Galatians 2.20. Thank you, Dan. Isaiah said he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. Peter says he bore our sins in his own body. Paul said he was crucified with Christ because God who loved us gave himself for us. So no matter who you are, if you are born again tonight, you can declare with all your heart, Jesus was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. He himself bore our sins. He took your sins in his own body on the cross. And Peter says, by whose stripes you were healed. Now, by the way, in spite of what you hear some People teach that it's not physical healing, that it's spiritual healing. You were healed spiritually. He took our place. (laughs) But here's what's interesting. Again, who did Jesus die for? Everybody. Everybody. But faith individualizes it and declared, I am crucified by Christ. The one who loved me. The one who gave himself for me. And I want to say, praise God, what a Savior. What a Savior. Well, we saw what those at the cross saw, what we ought to see. But here's what's interesting. We know that many of our world do not believe. Does that mean Jesus did not die? No. Does it change any of that fact? No. So what do they see? Number one, they see the one whom they despise and reject. And they continue to do so. Now, he still loves them. He will save them if if they come to him. But they see the one who they despise and reject. And for those who are unsaved... uh, You know, it's not just a negative attitude here. If you're not saved, you are not a friend of Christ. Matthew 12, 30. Anybody got that? Okay, according to Matthew 12, 30, and this is not the only verse we could have used. uh, How many groups are there? And what are they, Dan? What's the third group? There's no third group. You're either for him or you're against him. And I know you, you I'm, and I think I probably said it, well, they're almost saved. You know, you know what almost saved means? Totally lost. They're still lost. They're still against Christ. There's no middle ground. And those who are in that group despise his authority 
They snub his laws, and they disregard his claims, and they certainly are not going to be bound by his yoke or led by his scepter. And so they're as guilty as those who crucified him. So they see the one who bore their soul. But second of all, the fact they don't believe, does that say that Jesus is not the Savior? No. They see the one who God sent as Savior. And here's what's interesting. Even as horrible as they treated him there at the crucifixion, isn't it true he was willing to forgive them? What's that say about today? He's still willing to forgive. And heal the wounds that sin has made in our lives. And to save the lost from eternal death. John 6, 37. Wait a minute, what's that say? If you come to Jesus, guess what? He won't turn you away. He won't turn you away. And all they have to do is surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The third thing that the sinner sees, if they don't repent, one day that Savior will be their judge. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Thank you, Bill. What's the word all mean? Everyone, come to me, Jesus, and I will give you rest. You see, the only hope the unsaved have is come to Christ. There's no other way. Simply come to Christ. And not only will he pardon your sins, he will give you a royal welcome into the family of God. Now, by the way, and Bill, thanks for reading that a moment ago. Jesus invites us to come to him, but he also makes a promise. If you'll come to me, I'll give you rest. I will give you rest. But those who refuse, those who flaunt or ignore the invitation of God, those who reject his grace, Matthew 25, verse 41. Anybody got that one? Wow. Jesus speaking here. And if you have people on the left hand, what else you got to have? People on the right. The right are invited into the joy of heaven. But those on the left hand, those who continue to turn their back upon Jesus, will one day hear Christ say, Get away from me. You are cursed into an everlasting fire. And that fire wasn't prepared for you because I didn't want you to go there, but you made that choice. That fire was prepared for the devil 
and his angels. Now I realize we're living in a time where a lot of people in the church don't believe in hell. How many know that Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else? He spoke more about hell than he did heaven. And just as sure there's a heaven to gain, there's a hell to flee. And Christ said that those who continue to reject him will spend eternity in a devil's hell, separated from God forever and ever and ever. All I can tell you is this, folks. I am thankful for the crucifixion of Christ. And I'm thankful that faith makes it individual for me and for you. I don't care who you are. If you're listening tonight online, Christ died for your sins. You, can, you, you, you have a choice to make. He'll not force you, but he wants you to choose life, and you can today. Let's stop there for tonight, and let's go to the Lord in prayer.